Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how the heck are you doing today? I'm really good, thanks, Mike. And I've uh, been sent a couple of things in the post. Oh, well, do tell. Well, first of all, just a quick one. I've been sent some uh, action figures for Batman the Animated Series, uh, which are from Eagle Moss over here in the UK. Uh, it's a series of one to six, and they're pretty good little statues. We had more statues rather than action figures, but they're out they're out over here to buy, so that's very nice and to send them over, so worth checking out. But most intriguing, I've been sent this... Uh, it looks like somebody's journal or a diary. Uh-huh. And what could yeah. that entail? Well, it's uh, it was hard to read. It looks like very scrawly, the writing, some of it was. But uh, there's, I could make out one little bit. And it says it says in brackets, read in a, in a gruff voice. So uh, I'll, I'll do this. It, but it's, uh, it's Monday. The rain is cold as I watch over the city. I found a new podcast. Those self-serving <laughs> fools talk about the endings of films for some reason. They are the palatable scum that floats to the top of the tepid sewage of the podcast world. I do like Mike's trivia puns, though. <laughs> that's all I could make out. Oh wow, yeah. that that's pretty that's pretty intense. Um, it was weird that the only bit I could read was quite specific to us, <laughs> right? But you know, that definitely sounds like it ties into one of the movies that we're doing today, B movie. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> yeah, B movie it is, isn't it? Right. It's Jerry Seinfeld's obviously diary. Obviously, that's Jerry Seinfeld's diary, and I thought your impression of him was spot on, actually. Really? <laughs> uh, really? No, I can't do Jerry Seinfeld. Clearly not. I, th- I think you need to do have the base American accent to be able to do Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, that, that would probably be helpful. But yes, that's what we've been sent in the post today. Very cool. All right. Well, those action figures do sound neat. And uh, and why don't you tell people what that actually ties into in case they are confused? Uh, yes, we're going after the ending of Jerry Seinfeld's The B-Movie. But uh, the diary ties into our other film we'll be doing and after the ending for, and that is Watchmen. Yeah, it's uh, the adaptation of the Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons graphic novel, the classic graphic novel, which is uh, which is very good. I'm also be doing our top ten. I like films. I like Phil that you just boiled down Watchmen, probably the most influential graphic novel of all time. Too, it's very good. If you've read if you've read it, you know how good it is. And if you haven't read it, then what are you waiting for? I think that about sums it up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And we'll also be doing our top ten favorite films of 1984. And there was an awful lot of films out in 1984. Well, it's a jam packed episode, so why don't we dive right into things? Let's do it. What are we starting with? Why don't we go ahead and start with B-Movie. Phil, why don't you take us through the events of that film? I certainly will. Okay, then. Well, Honey Bee, Barry B. Benson, voiced by Jay Seinfeld. Can you see what they did there with the name? Lovely bit of alliteration there. Indeed. Yes, yes. Uh, he's graduated college. and it's, Oh, yeah. The context is he's an actual bee. To work at Honex Industries, uh, Barry doesn't like the fact that he will have to stay in the same job once picked, so he starts talking all, really? All that kind of stuff. Uh, but while out collecting pollen, he gets lost in the rain and ends up meeting a human florist called Vanessa, by, uh, voiced by Rennie Zellweger. She saves Barry and he breaks the rule that bees should not talk to humans. So that's quite a big deal. And there's also some kind of weird relationship between the two, a human and a bee. 
but we won't go into that. What you call weird, I call beautiful. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> is it is it is it buzztiality? Buzztiality? <laughs> Something like that. Uh, uh, Vanessa and Barry, they talk and become good friends. But Barry is horrified to find that humans steal and eat the bees, honey. And also, the way they treat the bees is disgusting, the way they smoke them to keep them docile and everything. He decides to sue the human race to stop them exploiting bees. He eventually wins the case, but the huge stockpile of honey puts every bee out of a job. And without anything to pollinate them, the world's flowers begin to die. But a small flower parade in Pasadena, California still has some viable flowers. So Vanessa helps Barry and the bees get there. They get the pollen and save the world's flowers and restart honey production. Humans and bees work together with bee-approved brands of honey. Barry ends up being a pollen jock, going around getting uh, all the pollen, but he also runs a law firm inside Vanessa's flower shop. Called Insects at Law, it handles disputes between animals and humans. And that's how the film ends. Very well done. Now, I really like this movie, Phil. I, I think it's a, a, a kind of an underrated animated comedy. How, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I've only seen it the once, but I, I enjoyed it. It did make me laugh in places and had a bit of a renaissance a couple of years ago. Yeah. With like, you know, it became very meme-tastic. Right. With all kinds of things about that. But uh, it's just a bizarre, it's a bizarre setup, but it's uh, most animated films are when you, you look at them too closely. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just find the sense of humor really works for me. It's, I think it's very funny. I love the sort of meta commentary it has. I like the characters are funny. It's just a lot of really great bee-related humor. Like, I didn't know they could get so much humor out of bees, but I think they really did. They do, and, yeah. Uh, and it does. On, the, on the whole, the jokes do land as well. Yeah. Ray Liotta, yeah. premium select, honey. I mean, I don't know. That just that, that gets me every time. But I, I do I do enjoy this movie quite a bit. If you haven't seen it, uh, I, I do recommend it. It's not. It's not, you know... It's not a classic for the ages. It's not going to replace Bambi anytime soon, you know. But it's a really funny film. That's a good way to to kill ninety minutes. So check it yeah, out. Yeah, it's an enjoyable watch. I should really uh, should give it a watch with my daughter. I bet she'd really soon. like it. My kids like yeah. it a lot. Yeah, you'll have to do that. Very cool. Okay, though. But that was the events of the film. What do you have happening on the day after? Okay, well, Barry is enjoying his life as a combination lawyer-slash-pollen jockey. He continues to be close friends with Vanessa, who has seen business at her flower shop explode, thanks to her fame as part of Barry's trial and her actions in saving the world's flowers. One day, while he's working late at the office, Barry is startled by his front window shattering. He looks and sees that someone has thrown a brick through the window with a note wrapped around it. He unties it, and written in honey are the words, Buzz off, Barry. I know. Scary. He writes it off as a prank, but then he begins receiving a series of strange and threatening phone calls. He confides in Vanessa, and she's concerned that someone from Big Honey is out for revenge on Barry for shutting down so many of the illicit honey operations after his trial. Barry wants to ignore the threats, but Vanessa won't let him, and she calls in a group of private investigators to help Barry figure out who's behind it. Enter the Insect Squad. (sighs) No! <laughs> I don't know who they are, though, so I don't know whether that was the appropriate response. But it's Not really, but that's okay. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing what the Insect Squad will be up to. Okay. Meanwhile, though, let's see what's going on with your day after. The world has changed. Humanity knows bees are sentient beings, and so they begin to wonder whether other animals and insects can talk. After the events of the previous few days and this huge revelation, vegetarianism spreads around the world. The treatment of all living creatures also begins to improve. Barry comments in like a kind of, you know, New York kind of whiny way, how it is funny that humans are finally treating all living creatures better, including their fellow man, now that they've realized that they are totally outnumbered by all the animals and insects of the world. Barry and Vanessa realize their relationship can go no further, but they do vow to remain good friends. But just as Barry is closing up his shop for the day, he gets a new client. A small ant by the name of Percival, 
wants to hire Barry to represent him in some negotiations he has planned. I want to go to Mars, the ant tells him. And that's my day after. Hmm. Ant on Mars. Okay, interesting. I like it. Okay, thank you. Uh, but what's going on with yours and with the insect squad? All right, well, the insect squad is on the case. The team is led by Flick, an ant who once led a successful uprising. <laughs> nice. Joining him are his stealthy spy, the dragonfly Evanrude, the con man, Jiminy Cricket, oh. the muscle, Corporate Weaver, who's an ant who sounds suspiciously like Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> and Charlotte, a wise old spider who is something of a mentor to Flick. Oh, nice. They begin to investigate and uncover a plot against Barry's life. While trying to figure out who's responsible, they put Barry into the Witness B location program so he can hide safely until they catch the culprit. While he's gone, Vanessa isn't allowed to have contact with him, and she realizes that she's in love with Barry. Vanessa sends Barry no! a <laughs> it's it's bestiality. <laughs> Vanessa sends Barry a message through the insect squad telling him that they have to meet. Despite the insect squad's warnings, Barry agrees to meet her in a secluded location. But as Barry waits for Vanessa to arrive, he doesn't see the sniper drawing a bead on him and preparing to pull the trigger. Oh, so okay, so we've got a sniper ready to shoot. Okay, he's going to have to be a good shot trying to hit the bay. Excellent, I look forward to hearing what happens next. Well, that's to come. But meanwhile, let's hear what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay, Barry and Percival have had weeks of meetings with NASA and Elon Musk's SpaceX. Percival and many other ants have a proposal to send them to Mars. There would be a tiny payload, just them, food supplies and some other equipment. The plan is to land on Mars and for a landing pod to be fired deep into the ground. The ants would then begin digging and exploring and send their findings back to Earth. Barry draws up a contract uh, for NASA and SpaceX who will work together for this mission. A few months later the rocket is launched and the ant colony lands successfully. Their first reports soon follow. That's my immediate aftermath. Ants on Mars, okay. Mm. But what's happening then with the, with yours then? Does the sniper take the shot? So, Vanessa arrives at the meeting and is overwhelmed with emotion when she sees Barry. Just as she's about to reach him, a shot rings out. Vanessa throws herself in front of it and takes the bullet meant for Barry. It strikes her right in the heart. No. Barry, I, I love you, she gasps. Then her eyes flutter closed. No, Barry yells out. <gasps> Then Vanessa coughs, opens her eyes, and sits up. She looks at her chest where the bullet struck her. She's surprised to see there's no blood, nor is there any pain. She looks carefully, and eventually she finds a minuscule hole in her shirt. Underneath it, she finds a tiny pockmark on her chest. <laughs> Turns out the assassin was using B-sized bullets, which are way too small to have any major effect on humans. The insect squad rushes over and captures the assailant. When they pull off his mask, they're all shocked. Buzz the bee, they all exclaim in unison. <gasps> yeah, that's right. I was a millionaire living large. Then you went and made bees a charity case, and Honey Nut Cheerios kicked me off their boxes. My whole world came crashing down thanks to you, Barry. And I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling bugs. <laughs> with that, he rips free of his captors, flies at Vanessa, stings her, and then dies. Ow, Vanessa exclaims. Now that actually hurts. Barry rushes into Vanessa's arms and says, I love you too, Vanessa. And the two of them walk off into the sunset. Ah, nice. Nice ending. But, Thanks. But how, how does it, you know, being a human, how does it work? I had, you know, that's for the third film. Oh, the R-rated one. Yep, that's for, the, that's for the third movie, so we'll see. But meanwhile, let's hear about your long term. Okay. A few years later, Earth has outposts on a number of planets in the solar system. Various insects, more suited to the harsh environments, have become explorers for the joint benefit of all life on Earth. There are even rockets being sent out of our solar system, with insects on board and a state of suspended animation. Science on Earth has been flourishing. 
Research teams comprised of humans, insects and animals have, been, have seen almost miraculous developments in technology, medicine and more. Barry's law firm has gone from strength to strength and he represents many of these insects and animal scientists and business persons. One morning, Barry gets a strange message. A tardigrade by the name of Colin wants to speak to him. It seems that microscopic creatures want to join the multi-species cooperative. <laughs> there you go. Uh, wow. I didn't, uh, I gotta say, uh, this is probably the first episode, maybe the first podcast ever to use the word tardigrade. I do like tar- tardigrades. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't? Mm. <laughs> I mean. For anybody out there doesn't know what a tardigrade is, they're really cool little microscopic creatures that can survive anywhere. Uh, look them up online. They're kind of cute in a real horrendous looking way. <laughs> Just like me. Uh, unlike me as well. <laughs> All right. Well, those are our endings for B-Movie. Phil, do you have any B-Movie trivia for us? Okay, B-Movie trivia. Jerry Seinfeld was having lunch with Steven Spielberg, and he mentioned uh, the idea for the movie as a joke during it, but uh, Steven Spielberg loved it. So what are you going to do? You're going to make a movie? You can just imagine that, though. Seinfeld's telling you as a joke, and you just go, no, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. Right, right. I, lo- I love that, Jerry. I love it. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, Barry's love interest, Vanessa, is also the name of Jerry's first love interest in the Seinfeld TV show. Hmm. All the bees in the movie have either buzz cuts or beehive hairdos. <laughs> and Seinfeld, Jay Seinfeld says he doesn't want to make a sequel because it would take away from the uniqueness of the original. But I'm sure as soon as he hears this episode, he'll go, you know what? I was right. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think we've given them some something to chew on, though. Yeah, for sure. But uh, that's the B movie. That's Very just good. B movie, isn't it? It's not the B movie. Right, just B movie. Yeah, just yeah. B movie. All right. Well, there you go. So let's move on then to our next film. Strap in, folks. This is a big one. It is 2009's Watchmen, based on one of the greatest graphic novels of all time. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how you summarize this, Mike. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Phil, since you so bravely volunteered me for it last I week. I did, didn't I? Yeah, I just threw you under the bus. <laughs> you really did. Yeah, I just uh, I just didn't want to do, do the intro to this one, so I just said you could do it. Yes, I, I appreciate that, Phil. Nice... Uh, Nice of you to take that. Uh... Oh, no, I, I like to think I asked, but I know I didn't. <laughs> you did. You asked, but I, I decided I would I would take that one for the team. So, uh, Well, here's how I, I recapped it. I tried to keep it actually pretty short. So basically, I just left a lot of stuff out. Yeah. Um, but I tried to hit the most important points. But here we go. So Watchmen 2009, directed by Zack Snyder, starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Patrick Wilson, Malin Ackerman, Billy Crudup, Jackie Earl Haley, Carla Gugino, and Matthew Good. So, the film starts with a sort of alternate history of America, during which we meet the Minutemen, a group of superheroes with origins reaching back to 1939. They are comprised of the violent mystery man Rorschach, the sociopathic comedian, the good guy the Night Owl, the sexy Silk Spectre, uh, the smartest man in the world, Ozymandias, also known as Adrian Veidt, and the most powerful hero of all, Dr. Manhattan, who can rearrange matter with his mind. In 1985, when the comedian is murdered, Rorschach's investigation leads him to realize that Ozymandias is behind it. He teams up with Night Owl to foil Ozymandias' plans, and when they confront him in his Antarctic lair, he reveals that his plan was to unite the entire world to prevent Doomsday by setting off a series of nuclear explosions that would be blamed on Dr. Manhattan. But they're too late and the nukes go off, destroying New York City. Dr. Manhattan and Silk Spectre teleport to Ozymandias' lair, But before they can kill him, Ozymandias reveals Richard Nixon on the TV saying that Russia and the U.S. are now allies in the wake of the tragedy. Realizing that exposing the truth would only set the world back, the heroes agree to keep the secret. But Rorschach refuses to compromise, forcing Dr. Manhattan to kill him to keep his silence. 
Dr. Manhattan departs for another galaxy, while Night Owl and Silk Spectre, or Dan and Lori, more familiarly, decide to return to fighting crime. As the film ends, we see a newspaper where a young staffer is lamenting that there's nothing to report on since there is now world peace. His editor tells him to print some of the crank letters they've received, and in that mail is Rorschach's journal, which he mailed off before they confronted Ozymandias, and which reveals everything. And that's Watchmen. Brilliant. You did a very good. Yeah, you just, uh, I'm very impressed with that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really tried to keep, I actually wanted to make it even shorter than that, but I just, you know, at a certain point, you just, you got to get all of the stuff. Yeah. Hey, what do you think of the film? So I, I'm a big fan of the Watchmen graphic novel, and I think that the Watchmen movie is really an incredibly faithful adaptation of the graphic novel. Yeah. And yeah. For some reason, I still don't like it very much. And it's one of those films that I can't put my finger on what it is. It looks great. I think they captured, you know, I think the casting is terrific. I think they got the look of the film right. They got the characters right. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, they, 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 they transferred the story onto film really well. It's kind of like with Sin City, where for some reason, even though it's an incredibly faithful adaptation, there's something about it that rubs me the wrong way, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is. You know, in hindsight, I look at it and I go, is it just that Zack Snyder doesn't make very good superhero movies? Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like it's one of those movies I need to revisit, but I've watched it a couple times, and I, I still can't yeah, get yeah. to the point where I where I really enjoy it. Oh, no, I, I really like it, but I know I know what you mean. I, I think the first half, I enjoyed the first half of the film more than the, the second half. But uh, the director's cut actually... Uh, seems to work even better for me, even though it is a, a lot longer. Right. Well, I know, I know what you mean. It's just something, something not quite. I can't put my finger on why it doesn't quite work as well as it should. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. Because they do. It's a, it's a, it's a conundrum. I yeah. Think. Well, I think all the scenes with Rorschach are the best. Yes, for sure. But I, that was the same in the comic book as well. And we should say, speaking of the comic book, that we are basing our ending solely on the movie itself. Yeah. While yeah. there was never a direct sequel to Watchmen, they did do some prequel graphic novels, and they are also currently, at the time we're recording this, they're doing a a DC Comics miniseries that's bringing the Watchmen into the DC universe, but that really doesn't tie into what we're doing. We are putting our endings are solely following up on the events of the film itself. Yeah. Just wanted to put that out there. That's very well said. Very good, Mike. All right. So with that said then, Phil, why don't you kick things off and give us your day after? Okay. The young employee at New Frontiersman tried his best with the old battered journal. However, it was very badly written and all he could understand was some bit about a film podcast about film endings. (laughs) (laughs) I like Uh, that you're sticking with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Some of it also seemed to be written in code. He gives up on it, puts it back on the pile and picks a few other letters to go in the article. Meanwhile, Dan, Dan Dryberg and Laurie Jupiter spend the evenings going from bar to bar as they're still a bit in shock over what Adrian has done. But they hold true to their plan and fight crime as and when it appears. There's actually a bit of a lull in crime as the whole world seems to be holding its breath to see what happens with the US and the USSR now being allied against Dr. Manhattan. Cleanup work has begun on the destroyed cities, but it's obviously going to take lots and lots of time and there's uh, radiation and things like that. Uh, but a week or so later, Dan and Laurie, now living in Chicago, a shock to read a news report. Rorschach's been spotted in a number of cities in the US. Mm-hmm. Interesting, especially since we know that Rorschach died at the end. Mm, but that's my day after. Okay. What's All right. Going? I like it. Thank you. What's going on with yours? All right. Well, I did something a little different with mine, so bear with me as always. Is this going to be your long-planned, purely, you know, uh, visual description? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all <laughs> comic book panels. Brilliant. Uh, th- this is my after-the-ending magnum opus, so uh, I hope I hope people will like it. Okay. All right. 1985. The young staffer at the newspaper, whose name is Clark Jameson, digs through the crank letters and eventually comes across Rorschach's journal. As he thumbs through it, his emotions range from amused to shocked to horrified. 
Realizing what the material inside means, he stores it away, as he knows that if it ever sees the light of day, world peace will come to an end. 1986. Night Owl and Silk Spectre get married. They use a space station to send a signal into deep space in order to invite Dr. Manhattan to the ceremony, but he doesn't show up. They are unsure if he chose not to come or if he simply didn't get the invitation. 1987. An investigative journalist tracks down Clark Jameson, a young staffer from the newspaper. Somehow, he's gotten a hint that Rorschach's journal exists and is determined to bring the truth to light. Jameson refuses to give it up, and the two of them struggle over it. In the fight, the reporter hits his head and dies. Jameson, in a panic, hides the body. 1988. Clark Jameson, racked with guilt over the death of the reporter, has suffered a psychotic break. He begins to believe that he is Rorschach and creates his own Rorschach mask. It isn't long before he hits the streets at night, working as a dangerous, deadly vigilante. 1989, the biography of the comedian, entitled So Long and Thanks for All the Laughs, is published. It is largely a puff piece, glossing over his role in Vietnam, his assault on Silk Spectre's mother, and most of the nastier parts of his life. It is an immediate bestseller. And that's where we're going to leave off for now, at the end of the decade. Wow, I like like the way you did that. Thank you. Very in keeping with the... You're taking the ending of the film, but doing it in the style of the comic book. Like it. Yeah, kind of what I th- I wanted to try and do get sort of that kind of get that feel of Watchmen in there. So yeah, and I'm, I'm glad the uh, I like what you did with this the guy from New Frontiersman as well. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Looking to see where that's going. All right. Well, soon to be revealed. But meanwhile, let's hear what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay. In between crime fighting, Laurie and Daniel have also been busy recruiting new heroes. Their aim is to have new Watchmen based in the surviving cities. They also follow up on the Rorschach sightings. He seems to appear all over the country and just seems to stand in one place. The sightings all happen at locations where a crime has recently or is in the process of taking place. Some of the sightings in different cities would suggest that there is more than one Rorschach, as they occur moments after each other. Could it be a group of new vigilantes? Meanwhile, the Allied US and USSR have been vigilant for Dr. Manhattan. After the destruction of so many cities, the two countries rush through the Manhattan Act. This gives the governments and the police more powers of surveillance, imprisonment, and so much more. Due to the panic that was caused by the cities being destroyed, the act has passed with little argument. Dan and Laurie realize the terrible power that the act has given the powers that be. Mm, that sounds ominous. Mm, it certainly does. All right. Okay, what, then what's going on with yours? And what year are we up to? And what's going on? Okay, well, 1990. Dan and Laurie give birth to a baby girl. They name her Hollis, after Night Owl's mentor, Hollis Mason. They both decide to retire from costumed superheroing in order to raise their child and keep her safe. 1991, Dr. Manhattan finally receives the wedding invitation from Dan and Lori. He travels back in time five years to the wedding and watches it from afar. Dan and Lori never know he's there. Dr. Manhattan feels nothing. 1992, the new Rorschach prowls the streets of new New York City, a teeming metropolis that was built 300 miles north of old New York City after the nuclear tragedy. He mostly takes out muggers, rapists, and robbers. Meanwhile, American relations with Russia begin to get tense. 1993, Night Owl and Silk Spectre give birth to a baby boy. Young Hollis is thrilled to have a baby brother to play with. Russia and America officially dissolve political ties. 1994, a young man named Denny Jeffries appears on a talk show, claiming to be the illegitimate son of the comedian. While he has no proof of his claims, television audiences quickly accept him at his word due to his striking resemblance to the late costumed adventurer. Jeffries uses his newfound notoriety to begin a political campaign, gaining votes with ease everywhere he goes. 1995. Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias, returns to the public eye. He's been in self-imposed exile since the events of Watchmen, but he comes out of seclusion to offer his endorsement of Denny Jeffries in his newly announced bid to run for president of the United States. 1996. 
After running on a platform that is strongly anti-Russia, the U.S. elects Denny Jeffries president in a landslide victory. His vice president is Adrian Veidt. Dan and Lori watch the election results in stunned silence, unsure of what Veidt has planned. 1997, the new Rorschach attempts to assassinate Ozymandias. His attempt is thwarted, however, as there's no outsmarting the smartest man in the world, and Rorschach is killed in the attempt. 1998, Russia stages an attack on Alaska, seeking to reclaim it as a territory of the USSR. 1999, President Jeffries, manipulated by Adrian Veidt, declares war on Russia. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, I'm loving this. It's really good. Thank you. Thank you. I had fun with it. All right. Well, let's see what's going to happen with yours. Bring it on home. Wrap it up for us with your long term. Okay. America is now a police state. Curfews are in place and military checkpoints are in force. The watchmen, or watchers, as they've now been called, are doing the best they can, but a few have been arrested or killed in the new crackdown. Dan, as night owl, while on a routine patrol, sees a familiar figure standing on a rooftop. He lands the owl ship and steps out to confront Rorschach. Not sure what to suspect, Daniel is most surprised when the masked vigilante steps forward and hugs him. Removing the mask, Daniel sees that it is, indeed, the real Rorschach, Walter Kovacs. As they sit on the rooftop under the full moon, Rorschach explains. Dr. Manhattan had ripped him apart, but rebuilt him in a crystalline palace in the storm of Jupiter. Dr. Manhattan had explained to Rorschach many things, and shown him wonders such as the, the Big Bang and the end of the universe. After many arguments and discussions, a deal was made. Rorschach, with new strength and abilities, as he says the latter, he makes a fist and arcane energy crackles over his knuckles, would return to Earth. He would keep his mouth shut about Veidt, but work in other ways to bring him down and also make the world a better place. Dan laughs at the last words. Rorschach nods. Yeah, it's going to take time, but we can do it. First of all, we have to get ready for the battle of our lives. He points to the sky. It takes a moment, but then Dan looks at him and, and goes, Aliens? Rorschach nods. An invasion of giant squid aliens is heading our way. It sounds stupid, but it's true. <laughs> the two friends sit on the roof in silence, both deep in thought. But Rorschach then coughs and looks over at Dan before saying, let's go punch Adrian Veidt in his perfect face. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's my ending. Very good. I like it. Uh, I should much. say for, for people who haven't read the graphic novel, that, that is the squid alien thing is a, a nod to the graphic novel. That's all I'm going to say. Yes, yes. Uh, but go on and what's, uh, what's happening What's happening now? Where Your journey through the years has been wonderful. Bring it on home, Mike. Okay. It's New Year's Eve, 1999, the turn of the millennium. It's been 15 years since the events of Watchmen. America and Russia are at war. Rorschach is dead, and Dan and Lori live in fear that the world will end before their children have the chance to grow up. At the stroke of midnight, Dr. Manhattan appears in Dan and Lori's living room. He's not the same man he once was. I've seen everything, he tells the stunned couple. I've been to universes you can't imagine. I have all the answers now. Earth is a cancer, and in order for the universe to live, Earth must die. With a flash of blue light, Dr. Manhattan destroys the world. There's no explosion, no catastrophe, it's just gone. At the same moment, Dan and Lori wake up with Hollis and Dan Jr. Dr. Manhattan appears before them once again. I've spared your family so you can begin again. The legacy of mankind will live on, but the poison within it will not. Do you accept this challenge? He asks. The two of them nod in stunned silence, and Dr. Manhattan disappears. Dan and Lori walk out of their home and realize they are in a neighborhood just like one on Earth, and there are other human families emerging from other homes on the street. Dan and Lori look up to see that the three suns in the sky are just beginning to set. Wow. And that's the end. Excellent. Thanks. I like that. Really like that. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks.
Yeah, I could I could see that working. I'd like to I'd like to read a full comic book based on all that. Well, maybe someday I'll write it, and then probably nothing will happen with it because DC is very protective of their properties. So. Yeah, because they're currently <laughs> using Watchmen, aren't they? And yeah, yeah, I don't think I have much there. of a shot, so that's all right. Yeah. Well, Phil, they ask who watches the Watchmen, but I ask who quizzes the Quizmaster. Ooh. I do you like have that. any Watchmen trivia for us? I do. I quite like that. Thank I'll you. T- I'll let that one go. Okay, thank you. Well done, Mike. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> a little callback. Uh, in the film, Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan are the only two Watchmen who don't swear, while the graphic novel does not feature a single F word. Uh, Jackie Earl Haley was the only one of the main actors who was already familiar with the comic book. But many of the others, when they were given the script and things, they asked their friends who happened to be into comics saying, should I do this? Should I, is it worth doing? And all the friends said, yeah, good God, it's Watchmen, do it. <laughs> right. It premiered in more cinemas in the US than any other R-rated movie at the time. It was a in 3,611 cinemas and had the biggest US debut of 2009 with a 55.7 million weekend. Uh, All of the US flags in the film have 51 stars because in the film's alternate history, Vietnam became the 51st state Mm. after America won the Vietnam War. That's cool. And the first trailer for the film, which premiered with The Dark Knight, sparked so much interest that it put the graphic novel back into the bestseller list. There you go. Mm. Well And well-deserved it was. Yeah, so it's uh, if you haven't read the graphic novel, uh, both myself and Mike... Highly recommend it. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Even if you've got no interest in comic books, and I think it's just really good. It sort of transcends comic books. Yeah. I mean, it's been yeah. on like Times 100 best books list. It's you know, it's 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 really designed, even if you're not a comic book fan, to be read and and read at an in depth level and dissected and and absorbed. You know, and, and and yet it's entertaining at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly is. All right. Well, there you go. So that is Watchmen and B Movie. uh, And that's going to wrap up our endings for that. And it's time to move on to our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes. But before we do that, we have a message we'd like to bring you from... Uh, a sponsor. We actually have kind of a sponsor uh, this episode, which marks our first time. But we're selective about our sponsors. We don't just we're not going to just read you some Blue Apron commercial or something like that. Uh, that's that's no fun. But buy bread, everyone. Buy bread. It's all good. <laughs> we do sometimes uh, want to help spread people's message, and and this time around we have one that we would like to share. So today's episode is brought to you by. Calvin the author's audiobooks. Now, uh, Calvin's a friend of the show, and he has created a podcast because he wanted to fulfill a lifelong dream of telling stories to as many people as he possibly could. So his podcast is Calvin the author's audiobooks, where listeners get an audiobook in narrated pieces from Calvin Mofield's stories. And the first story he's telling is an urban fantasy book called Eternal Night Seizures. That's Eternal Night, colon, seizures. Now, I've read this book, actually, and I I really enjoy it. I think it's a really cool story. And I'm not just saying that because Calvin's a sponsor. Now, you know, there's a difference with your sponsors on shows like this. There's the ones where people are just reading from a script, and there's ones where people actually fully endorse the product. And this is definitely the latter. I do think Calvin is a a really great author. So, uh, Phil, tell them, give them a little synopsis of the book, if you will. Okay, but I will just stress that I am now reading from a script. Okay, yeah, that part's, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I want to read this as best I can. Here we go. Max is a guy fallen on hard times. Once he was a detective with a girlfriend and a life he loved. But when the seizures and the visions started, he lost everything. Wing is a malcop, Max drinks to dull the pain of a good life lost. After a chance encounter with an old friend leads him to find out that the love he lost has been kidnapped, he sets out to get her back. After Max dies trying to save her, he is amazed to find himself awake and in perfect health inside a hospital. 
that is when life got interesting. So there you go. So it's a pretty cool story setup, and I have to say that that just sort of scratches the surface of it, but it's a, it's a really neat story. So um, after Eternal Night, Calvin's going to uh, narrate other stories, and so instead of having a podcast for each book, he's going to have one feed with all the stories in one place. There's 10 episodes out already. The story's really starting to get good now. You can start up at episode one, get caught up with a new piece of the story every Friday, and that is Calvin the Author's audiobooks. You can find it on most podcast apps including iTunes, and we will give a, a, an iTunes link in the show notes if you want to click on that. And as a special bonus, uh, we have a, a an excerpt from the show, but we're not going to put it right now because we know some of you, uh, hopefully all of you will check it out, but if some of you don't want to hear it, uh, that's that's okay. Uh, we're going to put it at the end of the episode, after the outtakes, stick around for a, a six-minute excerpt from Calvin's story to give you a taste of it so that you can hear it, and uh, hopefully you'll dig it. And you'll go check it out. So, uh, like I said, I've read the story myself. I really like it. Uh, and thank you to Calvin for sponsoring us for this episode. And I think he's going to be sponsoring us for one or two more after this. So check him out. Subscribe to his podcast. And uh, hopefully you'll get a really great story out of it. Excellent. Thanks, Calvin. And good luck with the podcast. All right. So that's our that's our little sponsored ad spot. And now it's time to move on to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein Phil and I take a year from the last century of Hollywood and share our top 10 favorite films. And this week we are doing a year from the, the feel-good decade of the 80s, 1984. So, Phil, tell us what the world was like back in 1984. Okay, Mike, I'm in the Wayback Machine. And here we are in 1984 where the UK Prime Minister is Margaret Thatcher and the US President is Ronald Reagan. Uh, 1984 was a leap year, which uh, you get that extra day. But uh, astronauts Bruce McCandless II and Robert L. Stewart made the first untethered spacewalk. That must have been a scary thing. Holy cow, I can't even imagine. Yeah, so so I'm going out there and I'm not tied on. You've, you've got a jetpack, you've got a jetpack. <laughs> exactly. I know I've got a jetpack, but I'm not tied on. Okay. Just so I'm clear. Yeah. One final time. <laughs> no yeah. no rope, no bungee cord, nothing, right? That's just, just make sure this, crystal just clear jetpack on this. that goes Okay. Uh, but, uh, but 1984 also saw the TED Talks or the TED Conference uh, being founded. Uh, US researchers announced the discovery of the AIDS virus. You know, so that's, uh, that wasn't good. Uh, Tetris was officially released in the Soviet Union. Cirque du Soleil was founded. Uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, murdered his first confirmed victim. And Terry Wallace, a 19-year-old, fell into a deep coma after a car crash. And he woke 19 years later in 2003. That's crazy, though. Yeah, seriously. And last but not least, crack cocaine was first introduced into LA. Ah, uh, good 1984, times. people. 1984. <laughs> uh, but we did see the births of uh, quite a few people. Calvin Harris, Trevor Noah, Olivia Wilde, Jamie Alexander, Catherine McPhee, America Ferreira, Claire Foy, Mark Zuckerberg. I think he did something with computers. Uh, Paul Dano, Aubrey Plaza, Gareth Hedlund, Taylor Schilling, Scarlett Johansson, Jenna Malone. Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Theo James were all born. And we lost Johnny Weissmuller, Jackie Coogan, Marvin Gaye, Diana Dawes, Eric Morecambe, Truma Gapoti, Richard Burton, Walter Pigeon, Francois Truffaut, and Tommy Cooper. And that's 1984. All right, very good. Okay, well, Phil, why don't you get us started and kick us off with your number 10? Okay, well, there's going to be a few of these, but it's a double whammy for my number 10. It is 2010, uh, the first part, which was the sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey. But this one was directed by Peter Hyams. It's not as good as 2001, but I do love it because we see what happened to Hal and, and you know, what's going on at Jupiter. And there's a great moment when uh, Roy Scheider's character, he sat in the spaceship and Hal, the computer, says, I have a message for you from David Bowman, who's been dead. And he goes, what's the message? And the message is turn around. And it's like really scary, but also really cool the way it's done. 
And the second film is David Lynch's adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Wow. It's a big, sprawling mess of a film, but I do love it. Okay. I do love some of the moments. I like the book. I just, uh, it's just crazy. It's mad. I like the whole style of it. What the hell? I could do without Sting and the codpiece kind of thing, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I can see why people hate it, but I, I kind of, uh, I really dig it. All right. That's my number 10. All right. Well, spoiler alert, Dune does not appear on my list. I can tell you that. Yeah, I didn't think it would be. <laughs> I, don't, I don't hate it. I just, it's definitely not a film I like enough to make my top 10. Yeah. All right. Well, my number 10 is a tie as well. My only tie though. Uh, and it is two films uh, that I love from my childhood. And one of them is The Great Cloak and Dagger starring Dabney Coleman and Elliot Thomas from E.T. Um, about a kid who thinks his dad is a super spy and oh yeah 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 uh, it's just a film i i must have watched this movie a million times when i was a kid and i loved it and i i wore out the vhs tape uh that tells you <laughs> something but um really love that movie and the other one is tank starring james garner which is as forgotten a film i think as they come and it's about huh. this army sergeant and he he stops a, a pimp from beating up a call girl and he gets in trouble with the law and so he basically goes and gets his like m1 tank and sort of wreaks havoc on the town because his son gets arrested on trumped up charges and i think it was sort of like trying to be kind of a, a somewhat comedic version of rambo or first blood i guess more accurately i don't know if that makes okay, sense yeah. but no, yeah. um it's honestly it's a film i haven't seen in a long time which is why it's at number 10 but i i, I did really love it when i was a kid and i watched it a bunch of times i just loved James Garner sitting on top of this tank and chuckling, and I thought he was the coolest dude in the world. So. I, I do like James Garner. I don't think I've yeah. I don't think I've heard of that film. I don't know that a lot of people have. I, yeah. I seem to recall it being a big hit at the time, but I think that's just childhood memories. I don't think it really yeah. was a big hit, but uh, I, I did enjoy it. It's kind of one of those those underappreciated gems. So something to track down if you're curious. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Well, my number nine is a. A serious one, but I, it's a it's a cracking film. It's The Killing Fields, which is basically talking about what the Camel Rouge did in Cambodia. Uh, and it's just, I didn't know much about it. So the film, it's just done so well, though. And you're following like a, a journalist and a, a photographer, uh, and they just see the horrific, you know, murders and things that, you know, that, was, that happened there. It won a few BAFTAs. It, oh, it's just a brilliant film. You've, you've, you've really got to see it too. It's, uh, it's obviously goes to dark places, but the way it's done is just, it's, you're on the edge of your seat. You've just got to watch it. Well, my next film, number nine, there are three rules about it. Never get it wet, never expose it to direct sunlight, and never, ever watch it after midnight. Although that last one, you can probably, you know, skip around. <laughs> but it is Gremlins, of course. Uh, great creature, fun film, kind of a horror movie comedy for kids sort of thing i don't know it really kind of defies genres christmas movie fits in there yeah, too. yeah 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 uh, but it's a lot of fun excellent okay well my number eight is another double whammy the first one is the adventures of buckaroo banzai across the eighth dimension i knew that would be on your list yeah we, we uh, went after the ending of that back in episode 16 so if you want to see what we how we could even comprehend what happens after that go back and listen to that but it's just a crazy mad film about buckaroo banzai who's a physicist test pilot neurosurgeon and rock musician and is is his gang of the Hong Kong Cavaliers fight these aliens from another dimension and it's just crazy over the top. It's just it's just bizarre. The first few times I watched it, it took took me a couple of viewings to actually get through it because it was so strange. I remember just sitting when I was a, a teenager watching it with a few mates and introducing it to a few friends and they were just going, what is this, Phil? What are we watching? What have you done to us? But they all liked it as well, so that was okay. And the second part of my number eight is uh, Night of the Comet. Uh, great film. 
Yeah, which is all about a comet goes over the planet and loads of people die by getting turned into dust or they get turned to zombies and there's a few survivors trying to make their way through it. And it's a, a low-budget horror comedy kind of thing, but I just love I loved the whole atmosphere of it and I just I, lo- I love that kind of thing where they're just empty streets and the weird-coloured skies and things. It was just just a good concept and it was done, done pretty good. I remember watching it a few times late at night and really enjoying it. Yeah, it's a fun film. Didn't quite make my list, but I do enjoy it. Well, my number eight is uh, a film that I'm also sure will hopefully appear on your list, but it's it's number eight. It's a film I love. It might have been higher, but honestly, I haven't seen it in a long time. And it is Starman, directed by John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes. it's probably the least John Carpenter, John <laughs> Carpenter film. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's part of what I like about it. It's a really good story of this alien that comes to Earth and inhabits a human body and they, they, he sort of has this relationship with this, this woman as he learns about the world, and then he's hunted by government agents, and it led to a a short-lived TV show that I also loved. But um, it's a, you know it's a, it's a great movie. You know, it has a lot of humor in it, and I don't know, it's just great science fiction that John Carpenter directed uh, really, really well. So that's my number eight. Excellent, an excellent choice. Uh, my number, my number seven. It's another double whammy, but it's the last double whammy of this. And it is, the first one is Gremlins, which you've already mentioned. Lots of fun, as you say. It, uh, it's also got the best story about, uh, you know, Christmas being a happy time. Right. <laughs> by Phoebe Cates. Uh, but the, the other film as well, my number seven, is uh, The Karate Kid. The first one with uh, Ralph Macchio, Pat Morita, and Elizabeth Shue. Just, we all know The Karate Kid. Yeah. And I'm just, I was watching it back then in the 80s, you just... You did want to learn, you know, how to do martial arts. So you thought if you went out and you just painted a bit or washed the car, you'd know how to do it. But it didn't work out. Right. Uh, but it's just just one of those films, just perfect film of its time. And it's it's great seeing this this kid who you could you could visualize yourself being, you know, stick, sticking up to the bullies who were making his life hell. Right. All right. Well, my number seven is a comedy. It's one of my favorite comedies from the 80s. And it is Johnny Dangerously starring Michael Keaton. Uh, pretty much a, a straight oh, send yes, up yeah. of the old gangster movies. Uh, he plays, a you know, a gangster who's not really that bad of a guy. But um, I probably saw this movie when it was way too... I was way too young for it to be appropriate enough for me, but it doesn't matter because I loved it. I still think it's very funny. I think it holds up extremely well, maybe because it's a period piece, kind of takes place in like the 30s. Michael Keaton is just in comedic genius form, in my opinion, and there's just so many great scenes and funny moments, and I really love this movie. It's one of those ones I watched as a kid and I've just never, ever gotten tired of. Yeah, it's one of... I think I've seen, but I don't remember much about it. I must have seen it uh, a long, long time ago. You got you to gotta revisit it. It's a really yeah, funny yeah. movie. Okay, my number six is The Last Starfighter. Yeah, kid plays a, a video game and then ends up getting taken to space and pilots a spaceship for real. And it's just great. We did, we did an after the ending back in episode nine. I really like it. Uh, some cheesy moments. Some It was one of the first films to use CGI. And it's a great concept. You're always getting told off when you're a kid playing video games because you're not going to amount to anything. But in this film... He amounted to saving the universe. So so take that, people who tell you not to play video games. <laughs> That's right. That's my number six. Good choice. I didn't make my list, actually. I do like the film quite a bit, but it's not it's not a top ten one for me. All right, well, my number six is a film starring Robert Redford. So big surprise that it's on my list, <laughs> but it is The Natural, uh, which, uh, you know, you said before, I, I'm not a baseball fan, but I love baseball movies, and The Natural yeah, yeah. is just a really fantastic baseball movie. Redford is phenomenal in it. It's got a great story, and um, it's just got that romance of baseball to it that I think is is better than the game itself. And uh, this is one I didn't see until, until late. I only saw this for the first time, uh, I don't know, between five and ten years ago. I didn't grow 
grow up with it. Uh, but I, I watched it and I was just blown away by what a great story it is. It's it's very, uh, you know, we paired it. We went behind after the ending of it way back when we paired it with um, Field of Dreams. I think it was episode eight. It was episode eight. It's a perfect complimentary film. It has that same kind of feel to it. It's just a, a warm, you know, movie that makes you feel good. So that's my number six. And, and I love it. Excellent. It almost made my my top 10. It was bubbling out there. It was in a bit of back and forth, but uh, no, I'm glad I made your list. My number five then is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Very good. I know people often say, you know, this is the weakest one, but then along came Crystal Skull Kids <laughs> and you realize it's not. I, I, I always I always quite, I thought it worked quite well. Yeah, uh, that's great. I, I liked some, some over-top action as well, but uh, it's got that pulp feel, which you need for Indiana Jones. Great scenes in the nightclub at the start. You got short round, but House and Ford is in the back in the day was spot on. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, my number five is a, a similar sort of adventure movie. Well, maybe not similar, but similar in spirit anyway. And it is Romancing the Stone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I like that one as well. Yeah. Yes. Michael Douglas and, and Kathleen Turner. Um, really one of my favorite movies. Just one of those films I've watched over and over and over again. I revisit it, you know, every couple of years. I never get tired of it. Michael Douglas has never been better. And honestly, that's the movie that made me a Michael Douglas fan. Like, yeah. He was famous when this movie came out, but I didn't know him because I was a kid. And I saw this movie in theaters when I was like nine years old. And I just, that was probably like my first man crush. Like I th- I just thought Michael Douglas was the coolest guy <laughs> yes. in the history of the world in that movie. And, I, and that'll never change. Like I'll never watch that movie and not think that Michael Douglas is the coolest guy ever. And honestly, for the past you know 30 years, I've thought he was pretty much the coolest guy. And I'll, I'll watch anything he's in. And it's because of this movie. It's just so much fun. And it's this great adventure. I love it. So that's my number five. I do like that film. They made my list, but yeah, no, it's... It's been lots of fun whenever I've watched that. So I always enjoy it whenever it's on TV. Yeah. Excellent choice. Uh, my number four, it's already been on your list, but it's Starman, the John Carpenter uh, film. I, I had a feeling. Yeah, I just, uh, Jeff Bridges is, does amazing work as an alien. He, he, he just, because you can see him as he begins, he just doesn't know what it, what it is, what it means to be a human, doesn't know what it all, how everything fits together. But you can see as, as it goes on, he learns more, he becomes more comfortable in this, this skin he's created. And it's, it's a, it's a beautiful story and it's done so well and it's so sad and and wonderful at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody involved is just does a brings the ray game to it. But that's it. That's my number four. Very good choice. All right. My number four is another comedy, and it's another one of my favorite 80s comedies. It's so funny. It is Top Secret, starring Val Kilmer. Uh, one of the Zucker Brothers parodies that, yeah, uh, I like that. Yeah. yeah, from the, you know, in, in the vein of Airplane. Uh, and it's basically kind of a send up of, of like spy slash war movies. And it's it's ridiculously silly. It's got a cow in boots and it's, um, God, it's so funny. And it was supposed to be a big hit. Everyone thought it was going to be a big hit because it tested so well. Yeah. And was... then it was a big bomb at the box office. It's crazy because um, it's so funny. Is that the one? It's got Skeet Surfing in as well. Is that? Yeah, Skeet Surfing, exactly. It, it honestly parodies so many things and it does them so well. And I can quote this movie for the next hour. I will spare you all that. But it's such it's such a good film and every scene makes you laugh out loud and I can't even count how many times I've seen this movie over the years but I never get tired of it if you haven't seen it because it isn't one of those movies that everyone's seen I I can't recommend it highly enough it's fantastic it is it's this is another one that almost made my list and I was like crossing things out and went back and forth but no it is it's such a good film such a funny film yeah it really is okay my number three though is uh, another comedy this one is uh, This Is Spinal Tap ah uh, good choice goes all the way to 11 but uh, this is a top 10 so we have to, you know, put it somewhere. <laughs> uh, I, see what you, I see what you did there. Thank you. I, I just, 
I think the first time I saw it, it was being it was on TV and I was half watching it. It'd been on for a while. I was half watching it. And at first I was going, I've never heard of this band. Because, you know, when you're half <laughs> right. watching it and you're talking to other people, it does look like a proper documentary, the way yep, it's done. Yep. And you see, I just love when you see the band, you know, in the 60s and things like that. They do it so well. And, and the songs are really catchy. But it's so, so funny when you sit and watch it properly. And it's it's so rewatchable because there's more things you you miss and, you know, things going on in the background, little throwaway lines they do. And you just want to see how the drummer's going to die this time and what right. have you. But it's just so many great moments. just it's a hilarious movie, and it's my number three. Well, my number three has already appeared on your list, and it is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, love me some Indiana Jones. It'll always be in my top five. Uh, but uh, the only reason the Temple of Doom is people, I think, rate it so low is just because Raiders and The Last Crusade are just so damn good. Yeah, um, yeah. But Temple of Doom is still a fantastic film. I just I just watched some of it on TV the other day. It was on. I just kind of left it on in the background. I was watching parts of it, and it makes me laugh. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's got some amazing stunts. And, and like you said, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones is one of the great movie characters of all time it was definitely gonna be on my list it could have been higher but there's a couple of really big films still to get to so mm. i have a feeling we're on track with our number one and two the question is going to be which order did they come in i have i i think maybe we flipped our one and two but let's see what happens it could be well it's obviously going to be the ice pirates <laughs> thought about it but i watched it recently and it does yeah. not hold up i know i i loved that film as a kid i did but too then, but, it but doesn't that, hold then i saw it a few years ago and just went Oh, oh god yeah yeah exactly my number two is the terminator ah okay interesting yes james cameron's first one in the series which well is brilliant and then he made terminator 2 which was also very good but it's arnie doing perfect role that arnie could ever do as a strong silent assassin type and yeah well you don't know the terminator but it's just i just it's iconic uh there's some dodgy bits with his you know when he's taking his eye out but it's all iconic the effects are really good for the time and it's a great story and it did start this huge franchise kind of thing terminator is my number two well my number two is probably going to reveal your number one because i think we flip-flopped but my number two is ghostbusters <sighs> uh i don't think i need to explain which film that is but it is my number two uh because i mean it's ghostbusters it's classic it's one of the funniest movies ever and honestly here's the thing i before instead of talking about ghostbusters let me give you my rationale and actually i'm gonna i'm gonna break convention phil and i'm gonna reveal that my number one is terminator <sighs> Well, my number one's Ghostbusters. There you go. All right. So here's my rationale. Because honestly, I was going to make them a tie for number one. Because how do you choose between the ghost, you know, Ghostbusters and the Terminator? I love both films equally, but they're very different films. So when I decided not to make them a tie, though, I really wanted to try and keep, you know, I don't like to put a, my number one as a tie. That seems kind of, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. So my rationale was I looked at the legacy of the films. And Ghostbusters is <laughs> one of the most brilliant, amazing films of all time. And it gave us a great cartoon. Yes. But then the sequel, which I like, is still not a great, great movie. Yeah, yeah. It's got some good bits, but... Yeah. There's the the reboot, which I also thought was okay, but that's about it. And then the the, the, the rest of the stuff hasn't... You know, the, the comic books never really were all that good or anything like that. Now, now Terminator gave us, you know, Terminator 2, which is one of the greatest science fiction action films of all time. Yeah. Admittedly, the, the sequels that came after that are a, a mixed bag. I actually really liked Terminator um, Salvation with Christian Bale. I know a lot of people didn't, but I love that movie. And I, I enjoyed Terminator Genesis, even though it's kind of a mess, but I like it anyway. Um, but then you look at the the series. I've read there's some great Terminator novels that take place after the events of the film. A, a yeah, really great yeah. franchise of comic books. Uh, there was a TV show. And to me, Terminator 
not only spawned a, a, a better franchise, but it also spawned James Cameron's career, which then went on to bring us some really fantastic movies like Aliens and you know, The Abyss. The Abyss. The Abyss, exactly. That that sort of was my determining factor because I love both films equally. So that's why I went with Ghostbusters at number two and Terminator at number one. I don't know. That's, I like your I like your thinking. I just I just prefer Ghostbusters slightly more than the Terminator. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all all that explanation. Of yours is like I just like it better. Yeah, I just like it a bit more. Perfectly valid. Yeah, it makes uh, Ghostbusters makes me laugh more. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I can see that. That's how I judged it. There you go. <laughs> I like but it. But no, I'm, I'm, you're right though. It's it's a very close one and two for both of us. So. Yeah, for sure. But great okay. films. I mean, those are those are effectively my number one and two, but they're basically a tie. That was 1984, and it was a pretty good year for films. Indeed it was. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our lists, and that is going to begin to wrap up our episode. Uh, Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next week? Yes, uh, next week we're going to be doing our top 10 favorite films of 1961, and we'll be going after the ending of Twister. And My Blue Heaven. Two very good films. I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, should be fun. It's been a while since I've seen My Blue Heaven, but uh, I remember enjoying that one at the time. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a good film, for sure. All right, well, there you go. So that is another episode in the can. Don't forget to stick around after the outtakes for an exclusive six-minute excerpt from Calvin, the author's audiobooks. It's a really cool segment of the story, so check that out. See if it whets your appetite. And uh, as always, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Yeah, so smack myself in the face with my headphones. That's it's going to be a good episode. I think that's pretty much the hallmark of a great episode, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, as long as there's bodily harm. Yeah, right. right exactly. Yeah, it'll it'll go perfectly for our uh, our new slapstick comedy podcast. <laughs> it's a little hard to interpret because most of the comedy is physical, but I think yes, we, physical comedy. You know, just loads of us going ooh ah, right. and I, ah. <laughs> why yeah yoda? Yeah, exactly. I was shaking my fist then as well. That's uh, you will shake your fist. When <laughs> well, you that's say the, that. that's the challenge we're going to have to overcome. You know, when I slip on a banana peel, how do we convey that properly to the audience? Oh, we need to get some of those slide whistles and penny right, whistles and right. things. Maybe a seltzer bottle to spray in each other's face. Yeah, we need to get some any foley artists who listen need to get in touch with some tips. Yeah, yeah, I love foley artists. That would be like my my dream job. Yeah, although I don't know I how hope. good the pay is, but yeah, but you get loads of lettuces and loads of other you know vegetables and things you can use at the end of it. Right, right, yeah. So there you go. It's like a big savings because you don't have to buy vegetables. Yeah. So if you're vegetarian, it's even better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe you get lots of like, uh, you know, bubble as well, stones and things and grit. I mean, who doesn't have a use for that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> All these bees things are really tricky. These are sentient beings. Yes, okay. And so sentient they begin to beings. wonder. beings. Yeah. yeah the world. Be careful not to overemphasize the bees. The world has words. changed. Humanity knows bees are sentient beings. And so they begin to wonder. <laughs> I can't get it off. <laughs> no, that's, that's not obnoxious at all, Phil. No. <laughs> okay. So the sniper's drawing a bead on a bee. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry to all the listeners for all these, you know, all these B. They're not even puns, are they? We're just, every time there's a B sound, we're just going B. If I've learned anything running a podcast for two years, Phil, it's that we got to be us. <laughs> <laughs> Can't oh. try to be someone well, else. I know, I just keep going blank on B things now. Oh. <laughs> to be or not to be. <laughs> Keep it up and I'm going to have to beat you with the pun stick. 
the what was the name of that new droid in the new Star Wars films? <laughs> B B B eight. Mm, yeah. Be still, my beating heart. Oh, two in that one. That was a double whammy. <laughs> Be still, my beating heart. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't think of any more. Okay. I'm a lot of bees. As is the world, if you, you know, the way they're dying out. Yeah. Yeah. Good way. Way to kill the vibe, Phil. Yeah. Way to kill the moment. Yeah. I was just, you know, I have to be who, you I, know, who I am. You know, what, you know what my favorite Beatles song is? Let it be. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear God. All right. I've just, I've just found another entry in the journal. It says, <laughs> it says, actually, I take it back about Mike's puns. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hang on, I got a plane. I'll write in my big reveal. I got one of the stupid planes outside. It's all loud. Oh, oh hang on. Is it a plane or is it a swarm of bees? <laughs> it's a plane. Oh. Sorry. A plane full of bees? <laughs> Could be. Could be. Could is, be. It, is it Sam Jackson in the new film, Bees on a Plane? <laughs> I have had it with these mother bees on this mother Play. Or is it? Or is it actually? It'd, it'd be Sam Jackson in the middle of a, of woods, and it would be uh, bees in the trees. What are you? <laughs> Good luck uh, editing this one. Yeah, I can't wait. Like that. That's called the. That's the B triple X movie. <laughs> Bow chicka bee bee. <laughs> and police more powers of surveillance imprisonment. <laughs> <laughs> Be calm, Phil. Yeah. You can do it. Yeah, okay. Take a drink of water. You just slip in a bee thing then as well. I sure yeah. did. Yeah. That's what I needed. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> you are welcome. So as always, we thank you greatly for listening. Don't forget to stick around after the outtakes for an excerpt from Alvin. Uh, Al- Alvin, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's going to be all like the chipmunks reading an audiobook. <laughs> ah, forever night. The guy looked to be a little bit over six foot tall and 250 if he was a pound. His tattered flannel shirt and dirty jeans hang loose on his frame as he swings wildly at a couple of kids from one of the pizza shops. In his right hand, he has a can of cheap beer and the rest of him looked like he hadn't bathed or showered this side of three days. Dude was a mess. If it hadn't been for a pesky things like laws, I'd have lit him up right there. But the bills don't pay themselves and I need this crappy job. Sir, I say to him in my official voice. Sir, what seems to be the problem here? I ask as I walk into the clear the crowd had created around him. I want that super shitty whore right out here now, he slurs. She's gonna get what she's got coming to her. While I feel that all cheating whores should get what they have coming to them, I sympathize. I believe that that particular description would include many of our shoppers and female employees for whom I've been hired to protect. So I'm going to have to ask you to leave the premises. I hear the inhaled hush of the crowd and realize that perhaps the couple of nips that I'd taken from my flask had caused me to overstate my point a bit. Best to change the subject before questions were asked. So I'm going to need you to vacate the mall grounds, including but not limited to the building and the parking lot. Or I will have to forcibly remove you, I say with as much power as I can muster. In the back of my head, I'm begging this guy to put up a fight. The drunk takes a stumble step, then looks at me with a mean mug. Why did you just say to me? I take a step closer and look the man in his eye. It's quite simple, sir. Go home, sleep it off, and you get to be embarrassed about being drunk in public. Or, I raise a finger so he understands I'm making a point. 
You can refuse to leave. I beat you unconscious, and you wake up in a jail cell embarrassed you were drunk and you got your ass kicked in public. Why, you little sawhoff? The drunk guy starts to cuss me. By law, I interrupt him. I am required by law to tell you that I am thoroughly trained in self-defense and have been given permission to use that training to remove you if necessary. You are a shit, the drunk guy says at the end of a long, silent, and very disgusting burp. Then throws his beer can down and raises his fists. Oh, thank you, Lord. I settle into our ready position and wait for him to throw the first punch. Pesky laws. I don't have to wait long before I'm staring down the end of his arm as he throws a haymaker so slow and telegraph that I can't tell if he's trying to hit me or hug me. I choose the former and raise my arm to block. As the pressure of his arm bears down on mine, there's a flash of light, and I lose sight of the drunken man. There's another flash, and I can see the drunk again. This time his hand is drawn back for another blow. I shift my weight, preparing to block again when I'm rocked by another flash. This time I can see bright green hills standing starkly in front of dark storm clouds. I can smell the pungent aroma of dew-covered grass mixed with dirt and campfires. Oh, God. Not now. There's another flash of light, and I'm back in the mall. The drunk man's ham-hock of a fist comes crashing down on my jaw, jarring my senses. Shrieks of red pain course through my head. I cover up my head and face and try to buy some time to counter. Another flash of light, and I can see the grass covered in droplets that shimmer in the morning light. I can see smoke in the distance, but I can't place its source. I sense fear all around, fear and anticipation of something. Again, I'm rocked by a bright flash of light. As I open my blurry eyes, I see that I'm on the floor. My back and head are aching like crazy. I can only imagine that I went down hard for one reason or another. I roll onto my side just in time to see the drunkard's foot coming right at me. I clench and try to tuck, but I'm a little too slow as I feel his foot sinking into my stomach. The air whooshes out of my lungs through my teeth like I was an untied balloon. I'm treated to an astronomer's dream as I watch stars dance before my eyes. I want to fight back. I want to stop this guy before he finishes with me and finds someone else. Putting that plan into motion, I right myself so I can push myself up on my feet. I'm woozy and sore. But on my worst day, I know I can take this guy at his best. Taking a step back, I test my legs. They seem strong. I roll my shoulders to see if there are any kinks in them. They work fine. Even my ribs and head seems to be clearing up. Maybe this guy didn't hurt me as bad as I thought. Too bad for him. I plan to inflict a lot more pain on him than he's managed on me so far. Finding my opponent, I know I need to end this quick. It's been a long time since I'd had a seizure like this. I had almost hoped that I'd gotten better. Seeing my opening, I put everything I have behind my right arm and I swing for the fences. Another flash of light. I can see the grass again. I stare intently at the individual blades while waiting for another flash, hoping for another ticket back to reality. It doesn't come. Realizing this is my new reality, I begin looking around my new surroundings. The first thing I notice is that I'm not actually standing on the ground. I'm on a horse. Another look shows me that I'm not alone either. There seems to be thousands of men teaming around me, either on foot or on horseback. All of them dressed in armor, covered with a shock white tunic embroidered with a crimson cross. My history is kind of rusty, but they kind of reminded me of the Templar Knights. Slowly, I start to raise my arms and examine the clothes that I have on and this crazy construct my mind has made for me. And to my surprise, I also have the same gray chainmail with a shock white tunic. Putting my arms down, I look around me. I see spears, flags, archers, and squires. It's a regular D&D round table minus the wizards and the elves. In my mind, I know that this is only in my mind. 
but I have to be impressed with the level of detail my subconscious put together. I can see and smell everything, from the green on the grass to the sweat on the horses. I just can't hear anything. The sounds I do hear come through muffled and indistinguishable, as if my head were submerged in a bathtub. Moving my head back and forth, I try to find a better angle so I can hear things more clearly. All I get is garbled junk. I catch movement out of the corner of my eye and swivel my head to see it. In front of me, I see a knight on a horse with wavy ravens-colored hair as well as a beard. He looks angry, as if he's yelling at me, but I can't make it out. I try to read his lips. I can feel that he's trying to tell me something important, something I need to do. I can almost make it out. There's another flash of light and I open my eyes. 